All right, we are going to finish our study in the book of Galatians this morning. If you have your Bible, you're going to want to open it up to Galatians chapter 6, or it might just be easier to open it to Ephesians uh, as Galatians finishes right beforehand. One of the unique qualities of the Christian scriptures is that that it has both a unified and divine author. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the word of God composed by the Holy Spirit. But it is also made up of a multitude of authors writing on a multitude of occasions and using very human literary forms to do so. So the book of Galatians, you know, is not some sort of um, abnormally high-speech religious document. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he had planted. And much of the New Testament is made up of similar letters written to entire congregations or individual workers that Paul had on his team. The reason why this is interesting for today is because if you wanted to do a comparative study of the closure of the New Testament letters, how they finish their letters, you would find a consistent pattern across most of them. If you look at the end of Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, if you look at the end um, of of Philippians or Colossians, all of them have similar traits in their closure, but Galatians not so much. In fact, um, what we usually find is a list of greetings and kind of PS plans. You know what I mean? Like, oh, by the way, I'm coming into town on Thursday. Have a room ready for me when I come. Usually it's that stuff. It's say hello to these people that I know personally or these people who are with me send their greetings. It's that type of stuff. It's not too far off from a modern letter. I don't know if we ever do this stuff in email because we send it too quickly and too regularly. But when you do compose a modern letter, you know, the way that we end these letters has a cadence, has a regularity to it. Galatians does not. In fact, it's strange to read the close of this letter and recognize that from verse 11, where we'll start today, we are clearly in the close of the letter. The body of the letter is over. He's now drawing things to a close. But he does not put the topic at hand behind him. In fact, he he can't seem to. I mean, not to be trite, but just think about this. Here he is closing his letter, and what he talks about primarily is circumcision. That, apart, that alone should set it apart from the ending of most of your letters. Okay? <laughs> but what it shows us, and I want you to notice this as we read it together, what it shows us is that Paul is so committed to the issue at hand, to his final breath in ink, he's unwilling to let the matter drop. In fact, we'll see that he doubles down here in verse 11 and draws attention to this close as if to grab them by the face and say, listen to me one last time before he puts his signature at the bottom. Notice what I mean in chapter 6, verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh 
who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. This section, Lord, is short, but it is dense. It touches on main and primary themes that Paul has spent chapter after chapter communicating to us that we have spent month after month studying. But I pray, Lord, that we would feel the full weight of the issue in the large letters that Paul writes his closing here. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to recalibrate our lives around what you have done in the cross of Christ and in the fact that you have made us a new creation. We pray that your spirit would teach us and guide us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We should open by just addressing verse 11. Paul says, See with what large letters I am writing you with my own hand. Now we know from other letters that Paul has written that he usually employed an ancient world secretary, an amanuensis, somebody who he would dictate to and would write his letters. Okay? And so it's not uncommon for him to kind of make a Hitchcock-style cameo right at the end, take the pen, uh, pen and sign his name, okay? and just say, you know that this is from me and not an imposter because here is my signature, just like we use it on our checkbooks today. Okay? But this is a little bit different. It's different for two reasons. Uh, one is, I think we can assume that Paul writes not just verse 11, in his own hand, and then hands the, the pen back to his scribe, um, but the rest of the passage. Okay, so he leans in heavy and writes an entire paragraph in his own hand. Okay, I think that's significant. Second, what does he mean when he says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand? Why does he emphasize his font choice? Right? And, and some have postulated, based on a whole bunch of information, that maybe Paul writes big because his vision's going bad. And that he's got this pain and this suffering, which he mentions earlier in Galatians, was part of the reason he preached to them originally, in weakness and not in strength. And so he says, I don't know, pity me. But that doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't really convey anything. It's, it's archaeologically significant, like, oh, maybe this is you know, putting together the pieces. But why does he say it here? Another possibility is he's pointing out the fact that this signature is really his. That unlike a trained scribe who has a nice clean script, he has handwriting more like mine, right? He's, he's like a doctor signing a prescription. It's, it's not as readable, it takes up more space, it's inefficient, and he just says, you know this is me because here is my, you know, here is my signature. I actually think it's different than both of those. I think the reason he is writing with such large letters here is because of emphasis. Okay? 
This is about Paul saying, read my lips. This is about Paul saying, let me put it in all caps for you. Okay. He says, see what large letters I am writing because he wants to emphasize what he cannot do with the volume of his voice. And so he does it in print. What he's about to say is still, even after chapters of argumentation that has both ethos and pathos, that is full of emotion and personality and also full of reason and argument, he still feels the need to change their minds and preserve them. Why? Because these issues are not supplemental. They're not minimal. For Paul, they are right at the heart of the gospel. As he told them earlier in this chapter, if you become circumcised, then you must keep the law. Christ's sacrifice is no good for you. You have fallen from grace, right? This is a are you inside or outside issue. This is saved, unsaved. This is gospel or heresy. And remember, Paul planted this church. He's prayed for these people for years. He's loved these people for years. He's invested in them. He cares about their fate, both now and in the life to come. And so he says, see with what large letters I am writing to you. And that's big and visible. It takes what was small and makes it larger. And then he takes something that is invisible and makes it known. Look at what he says in verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So notice what he reveals here. He reveals the motivation, the true motivation of those who are teaching the Galatians otherwise. He goes right to the heart of the matter. He says, you want to know why these new teachers are so interested in you? Why they've traveled all the way from Jerusalem to Galatia? Why they've laid all these things upon you and you know, tried to sell you the timeshare of the Old Testament law? He says, you want to understand what their interest is? And so he lays it bare here. Now it's helpful for us in this verse to follow the pronouns. I'll show you what I mean. Look at what he says in verse 12. He said, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. So the first thing he says is, those who are teaching you these things, those who are saying, Jesus is good, yes, but you also need the law of Moses. He says they want to make a good showing in the flesh. In whose flesh? Well, in one sense, in their own. They want to be somebody. They want the the honor and the reputation and the idea that being a good showing in the flesh here, in that sense, is before other people. Right? In the flesh, in this sense, means a good showing publicly. They want to be known as the people who traveled across the world to circumcise a bunch of Gentiles. But there's an irony in that, because how are they to do that, verse 12? A good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. What is it that's going to make them so impressive in their mind? The circumcision of other people on their body. And so it's a good good showing in their flesh, not mine. And then he digs a little deeper And this one we have to chew on for a second because it seems surprising. Notice what he finishes saying here in verse 12. He says, in order that, right, that's a purpose statement. Why do they want to make a good showing in your flesh? 
in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now here's something I would suggest to you that is always good to do when you read your Bible. Notice when things seem obvious and logical to the author that aren't obvious and logical to you. Right? That's like a speed bump. It should cause you to slow down and go, wait, what do you mean? What in the world does circumcision have to do with persecution? In fact, I would say that his motive that he lays bare here is a shocking guess. Not because he's wrong or potentially wrong, but because his Galatian audience would go, what? That's what they're interested in? So let me put the pieces together here. Here's what Paul is suggesting. He's suggesting that these troublers from Jerusalem who were trying to get these Galatians circumcised are afraid of non-Christian Jews. And so they're trying to remove the most offensive part of the gospel that God has come not just to save his own people, the Jews, but the whole world, and not through them becoming Jews, but through them becoming Christians, right? Through them receiving Jesus, that that in and of itself is sufficient. They're trying to remove that, and that will preserve them and protect them from the hatred of their own people. Now, all you have to do is read pages of the New Testament to see how consistent this is. In fact, Paul himself has had a habit of Jews following him from town to town, trying to get him arrested or killed. But here's what's striking about all this. Look at how complicated this scenario is. First, these troublers are not altruistic. They don't want to make a benefit for you Gentiles, but a public showing for themselves. They they are self-interested in your circumcision, he says. And then second, notice that they see that honor and glory and that reflection before people as being fully fulfilled in the behavior of others and not their own behavior. Right? What they feel like they can be upright citizens in, what they can boast in, is the actions of another. It's not even something they did themselves. And then lastly, underlying all of this, It's not a pride and boasting at all. It's a fear of other people. Now here's the thing you will learn if you pay attention to yourself for just a couple of months. Human beings are complicated. The reasons we do things are not always easy to discern and we very rarely scratch below the surface because we generally assume that we have the best interests in mind. We generally assume that we're relatively altruistic people. That maybe we'll do the wrong thing, but our heart was in the right place. Biblically, your heart is rarely in the right place. But I also think there's something else that's really interesting here. There are those who would believe that the only ones who were tempted by avoiding persecution, though the only ones who would modify the faith of Christianity, the teachings of the scripture, are those who compromise with the world, right? And so we don't talk about a Christian sexual ethic because it's unpopular. Or we don't enforce this part of what the scriptures teaches because it would lead to persecution. And I think that's a true reason, okay? The fear of man is an equal opportunity sin. But that's what's so significant here. These are the most rigorous and most religious and most hardcore 
except for the fact that they're terrified of bearing any cost of what they believe. Isn't that striking? Like I said, we would have a tendency to believe. Sorry, our Zoom audience just disappeared. I want to get them back really quickly. Actually, can you do it, Andy? Uh, you'll you'll have to. I'll have to log in. Oh, okay. Sorry. Say la. Well, yeah, it's because it's because I'm not actually signed in because I signed out otherwise. I should have guessed it was coming. just need to do this. Okay. Do you need to record? So sorry, everyone. And sorry, everyone on Zoom as well. Um, All right. Let me pull together a few pieces, get a little bit of momentum, and jump back into it. (laughs) So we see here that this group of people who see themselves as not just upright Jews, but upright Christians who are doing the right things are actually doing it to avoid the cost of following Jesus. In fact, notice the contrast that Paul makes between them and himself in the closing verses. Notice what he says in verse 17. He says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now what's he talking about there? If you have a Catholic background or you watch a lot of horror films, the word here is stigmata. Okay? And so there's a, there's a long-standing tradition of believing that what, Jesus, or what Paul experiences here are the very wounds of Christ miraculously appearing on his body as some sort of a sign. That's not what he means. Okay? What he means is he has suffered as Jesus suffered. And you can read about this in 2 Corinthians when he walks through the catalog of what it's cost for Paul to follow Jesus. His body is broken and bruised and scarred. Okay? He's even had a full-blown NDE, near-death experience, for following Christ as he was dragged outside of a city and stoned until presumed dead. Okay. So notice what the mark of his faithfulness is. Scars in his own body that looks like suffering like Jesus did with Jesus. But what's the other audience? Scars in the men of other people's bodies as I avoid the suffering that came along with Jesus. Do you see the contrast there? Here they present a shiny, perfect exterior and a religious argument, but they're cowards and heretics. And Paul says, you want to know what following Jesus looks like? It looks like weakness, suffering, and pain. Remember, this is what Jesus said. I tell you the truth. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There is a cost. And so Paul recognizes here that sometimes, and this is where I think we need to draw application, the people who speak the loudest on imposing their religious convictions on on others are the most self-interested and also the most afraid. 
boasting. He's just the Siamese twin of the fear of man. If you set up your reputation on what others think of you, then your identity is subject to your reputation and therefore subject to others. Those who suffer from the fear of man, those who seek to please all comers, those who seek to avoid offense, those who seek to impress the crowds, they all have the same thing in common. Their identity is built upon what others think about them. And I tell you that is less stable than the stock market. But it also is so significantly different than what we have experienced in Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come and impose rules and restrictions on other people's bodies. Did he? Nor did he ask them to do things that they weren't willing to do themselves, nor was he subject to the threats or opinions of others. When you read the Gospels, Jesus is steadfast, faithful, unwavering. He does not shirk from the truth. And yet at the same time, that doesn't come from a place of self-righteous boasting and promotion, but a place of humility, self-sacrifice, and altruism, interest in others. You cannot look at the life of Jesus without seeing the combination of both truth and love. Fully existing. Both knobs turned all the way up to 100%. But we encounter those in our lives that put on a good show, because they're interested in putting on a good show, and struggle to impose their rules on other people because they've yet to convince themselves they've done enough. And in their heart of hearts, they do it because they're afraid. That's what Paul is suggesting here. Now notice as he goes on, he says, verse 13, Even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Do you see the correlation between those two things? He's not just saying, look, they're asking you things that they're not doing themselves. That's clearly true. right? They don't keep the law, and yet they're saying, for you to be a Christian, you must. They know that they fail in the law, but they are teaching you that you cannot fail. But more than that, the reason why they're imposing circumcision on you is because they know they don't keep the law. This is a brownie points issue. This is extra credit or I'm going to fail the class. And again, they do it by converting others to their view. This is why Jesus criticized the Pharisees. He said, you will cross the known world to make a single convert. And then you turn him into a greater son of hell than yourself. But it's obsessive here. In contrast, listen to Paul, verse 14, but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is Paul's glory? What does he point to? What's in the spotlight of his life? Not himself. Which, side note, if you've ever been on stage, it's tremendously exposing. Even if you think you want it, once you get there, keeping it and keeping what you don't want in the spotlight in the shadows becomes a full-time career. You hire spin doctors to take care of that, right? I mean, just look at what we do to celebrities. 
right? We dig through their trash. Nobody digs through your trash, right? It is exposing to be in the spotlight. And so when you put yourself in there and you make yourself your boast, suddenly you're writing checks that your life will not cash. But for Paul, his boast is elsewhere. What's in the spotlight of his life? What does he give the praise and glory to? But more than that, it's not just that his boast is elsewhere, it's different. What's in his spotlight, he says, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, we have to do this every single time. You watch the Grammys, you see a lot of crosses, right? Maybe gold, maybe bejeweled, hanging off of necks, right? For us, we can miss the significance of what Paul is saying here. He's looking here at an instrument of death in the hands of one of the most tyrannical and oppressive powers that ever was, who engineered a horrible way to die just for the sake of being horrible. And he says, this is the most beautiful, the most glorious, the most worthy, the most praiseworthy. This is what's in the spotlight of my life. Okay, so it's not just that he doesn't boast in himself. He boasts not just in Jesus, who was a great guy, right? No, he boasts in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That the greatest that there ever was, God himself in human flesh, condescended, humbled himself, obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right? One of the things that makes this a boast is the distance from who Jesus really was to what he experienced there. Okay. But also notice it, he boasts in it and it's done something in his own life. He says, by which, con- uh, inclu- concluding here, verse 14 by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He doesn't just boast in the action of Jesus, he boasts in the action of Jesus in his own life. He doesn't look at that and say, now that's just amazing, I want to be like that. He recognizes that something significant has happened there. That he has been crucified to the world and the world to him. Now in the context, what is Paul talking about there? He's talking about the opinion of others. Paul no longer needs to make a showing in the flesh because his audience is dead. Or he is. Or they both are. Right? Because the curtain in Jesus Christ is closed and he's no longer on stage. Because the performance has been completely bought out and there's only one person in the audience. Right? These are the things that he's pointing to. But it's more than that. It's not just that he's been severed or separated from the world at large that may judge him. It's that the cross has changed his metrics. We see this in the next verse. He says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What's he saying? He's saying, Because of what happened in the cross, because of what God did in Jesus Christ, what I'm interested in, he labels here a new creation. And he references this in a few other of his letters. Here, it's so offhanded. It makes us assume that Paul's probably talked at length about this idea of new creation to the Galatian church. Right? It's, it's language that they've heard him use. It's like when you hear me say, in reality. Right? I say it all the time. Okay? So what's going on here is he makes a contrast here between you know, a little incision or not an incision, in a 
brand new world, new creation. He makes a contrast here between an external marker of boundaries and life where there was once death. He makes the contrast here between a work of man in an instance to the tremendous work of God who does the impossible. Okay? All of these things are involved in this idea. His metrics have changed, and they've primarily changed through inflation, through introducing a new form of currency. Let me show you what I mean. This is from another letter where he talks similarly from Philippians. Remember, these people felt the need to boast in the flesh, to put on a show in the flesh. Here Paul talks about that same audience, and listen to what he says. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, all right, you want to play the status game? You want to pull out all of the cards and all the badges and all the brownie points? He says, I'm going to win this one. And then he lists. He says, look, I was circumcised on the eighth day, meaning he was born into a Jewish family that kept Torah. He says, I am of the people of Israel. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. A surprising thing to note because through the exile, a lot of people lost track of their genealogy, but he can trace his line all the way back to one of the 12 tribes. He continues, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But... Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, see what he said. He says, these are all gains, but I put them in the subtraction column. I counted them as loss. I sold those shares. And why? He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You hear that? That's an economic concept. He says, I've let go of these little things in the same way that when you were a kid and you had a quarter, it was amazing. But now you leave them in the couch. You don't go looking for them. Now you drop one on the street and you consider not picking it up. Why? Because your bank account has, or your bank account has surpassing worth that makes the quarter pale in comparison. That's what Paul is saying in this passage and in the other one. He's saying, knowing Christ... Realizing what he has done has changed the economics of my righteousness. And so it's not just that I don't boast in these things anymore because they're not good. Some of them are fine. They're just not comparably good. He says, circumcision, uncircumcision, who cares? New creation. God has made me alive in Christ Jesus. God has placed his spirit Within me, God is producing a righteousness that I could never produce on my own because it is his own righteousness. It's all of these concepts that now are all consuming to Paul. And so to some degree, he's accusing these guys of not just being petty, you know, straining a gnat and swallowing a camel, to use the words of Jesus, but not actually recognizing what God's accomplished in Jesus Christ. That's what makes this such a big issue. That's what makes it possible for them to fall away from grace. He's going, do you not understand what God has done? You're still using the old metrics. Going back to Galatians. 
Notice what he says in verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. What does he mean when he says walk by this rule? What rule? We, we look in the verse before that and we don't find a commandment. Right? All who walk by the rule of what? Not, not circumcision? The word here for rule is the word where we get our word canon. Okay? Like the canon of scripture. Okay? Or when you ask somebody who's a Star Wars fan, you know, if Jar Jar Binks is canon. Okay? Do we have to treat him as, like he's a real part of the Star Wars universe? Right? That's the word that's used here. It speaks of a measuring stick, a measuring rod. That's what he's saying here. He's saying all who employ this standard, all who walk by this rule. See, here's the thing about measurements as a whole. They are always relative. This is why Einstein had his great epiphany about the theory of relativity, because he realized the theory of general relativity. That when we measure something, we always measure it in reference to something else. Okay? So when we measure how high something is, we measure it from the surface of the earth. But when you get off the surface of the earth, suddenly height isn't the right word, right? It changes your orientation. The way that we measure time is based on the cycle of the earth around the sun, but how would that be different if we lived on a different planet? These types of issues come to bear very quickly when we just stop and realize how big things are. And we always have to pick a point of reference. If you are a Christian, the cross is your point of reference. It is your metric. It is your rule by which you measure your own life because now your goal is to love as Christ loved, to do as, uh, as Chris mentioned this morning, no man can do a greater thing than to lay his life down for his friends. So God has loved us, let us also love one another. That's all metric language. Think of what Paul says in Ephesians. Follow in the footsteps of your Father who loves you. And love each other as Christ has loved you, forgiving you of your sins. That's the rule. That's the standard. That's the metric. That's why Paul can say that his boast is no longer in himself. And that his audience is no longer the world at large. It's because the records have been shattered. It's because the walls have been broken down. It's because, it's because the game has changed. The rules have shifted. And notice what he says here in verse 16. And for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. Now, clearly, that's, that's just a call for blessing. God, I ask that you would bless these people who no longer boast in themselves, let alone the circumcision of others, and instead boast in the cross of Christ by which the world was crucified to me and I to the world. But I think it's also an appropriate ask. Okay? He's asking God to do here what is natural and obviously the byproduct of being in that location. Peace and mercy are not things that define the life or the inner heart of these troublers who are troubling the Galatians. No peace because they're striving and struggling 
Because they're trying to prove, even to themselves, that they're worth it. There is, as Isaiah tells us, no rest for the wicked. But there's also no mercy. Because there's no mercy asked for. Because they believe if they just work a little harder, if they just round out the workload a little bit more, if they just accomplish a little bit more, convince a few more people, then that will be enough, rendering mercy unnecessary. But for those who boast in the cross of Christ, mercy flows freely and abundantly. And so does peace. It unlocks you from the opinion of others. It unlocks you from trying to prove who you're trying to prove to yourself that you really are. Because you're the blood-bought child of God. Because God is faithfully committed to, be, to finish what he began in you. Because whatever you were, neither male nor female, nor slave nor free, nor Jew nor Gentile, but now a son of the living God, a new creation. And then notice his last phrase here. He says, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. That phrase, Israel of God, not a contemporary, usual Jewish phrase. I know it sounds normal, the Israel of God, but you won't find it in your Old Testament and you won't find it in the writing of the rabbis. Paul doesn't evoke an old idea here. He uses a new label, and notice what it is. If there's an Israel of God, what else is there? An Israel that's not of God. Okay. What is Paul saying? Remember, his argument for the whole letter is those who receive Jesus Christ by faith are the true descendants of Abraham. You remember what Abraham told the Pharisees? He says, look, you guys boast in the fact that Abraham is your father, but... God can make sons of Abraham out of these stones. Right? Paul says in Romans 9, not all Israel is Israel. Recognizing that there's an untruth here. So the question is, is he saying here, peace and mercy be upon you Gentiles and also the real Jews? Or is he saying something more profound than that? Okay, Is he saying peace and mercy be upon them and upon you all as the Israel? And I would suggest, if you read Galatians and Ephesians closely, that's the point that Paul is making. This doesn't relegate a future fulfillment for the prophecies given to the Jews in the Old Testament. This doesn't dislodge them as the people of God and replace them as a church, but it does blow out the confines of Israel and include the church. In other words, don't gamble for what you already own. Don't seek to circumcise so that you can appear to be what you already are. They're telling you you're outside of Israel. You're not. You are the very Israel of God. And again, that is peace. No more striving to become what God made you. No more seeking to, you know, beef up your resume so that God would adopt you. You are already his child. No more seeking to convince a world. Because somehow if you convince them, God will take notice. He already took notice of you while you were still his enemy. He sent his son to die for you. Chose you. 
redeemed you, filled you with his spirit. And so he finishes again in verse 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He says, you want to see my resume? Fine. And he takes off his shirt. Shows his scarred body. But recognize here, that's not just another form of self-righteousness. He's not saying, you chose the wrong metric. I chose the right one. This goes back to what he said earlier. It goes back to what he said in Philippians. He counts this all as gain now for knowing Christ. It doesn't just change the way you see the best parts of life. It changes the way you see the worst of life. This is why he says in his letters to the Corinthians, he says the sufferings of this life aren't even worthy to be compared to the glories that are to come. And I want you to remember that Paul is not saying that from his soft bed in an ivory tower. He's saying that from prison. He's saying that knowing true hunger. He's saying that being chased and persecuted and lied about and arrested, all these things. And he says, it's just a flesh wound. It's nothing. It is amazing to me how abruptly he finishes this letter. He gets that all out of his system. And then he says in verse 18, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. If you get what he conveys in verses 11 through 17, then you feel the power of verse 18. If you recalibrate your minds to understand what God has done in Jesus Christ, if the the religious zealots lose their appeal because you recognize that it looks nothing like Jesus. Simultaneously, verse 18 becomes filled with power. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. The cross of Christ is the grace of Christ. The cross of Christ is God with us. Jürgen Moltmann, a German theologian, wrote a book called The Crucified God. And he says that Jesus in the cross took on man's God-forsakenness so that we might be with God. As Andy said in our catechism, it's the cross of Christ, the blood of that sacrifice, his perfect obedience and his loving self-offering that restores our relationship with God. And let me tell you again, especially if you're not a Christian this morning, if you get that, you will realize this is the reason why Christianity asks you for everything. Your whole heart. All your thoughts. Not just to give generously, but to see all your money as belonging to God already and you as a steward. Why it calls Christians to cross the boundaries of nations and put their life on the line just so that other people would hear. If God's love was so big and so sacrificial and so altruistic and so generous, then we stop asking the question, how much do I have to do to pay him back? 
And instead, like Paul, we gladly pour ourselves out as a drink offering. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. As the hymn says, Love so gracious and so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. But as we've seen here, the way that we value our soul, our life, our all is now through the metric of Jesus and his cross. Father, protect us from those who not only don't have our best interest at heart, but their own, but underneath have no confidence, no sureness, that are like Jesus says, whitewashed tombs, memorials, monuments that look really good on the outside, but inside is just rotting bones. And we know, Lord, that that was our condition as well. the whole world has something to prove. I pray, Lord, we wouldn't be privy to that anymore, that we wouldn't be hindered by that, that we wouldn't be constrained by seeking to impress or to avoid the negative reactions of others. But instead, you know, teach us Teach us, Lord, to just feel pleasure in being your children and live from that place instead of earning it. That we would just recognize that the old rules have passed away with the old world. Behold, all things are new. New things have come. We are a new creation in Christ. pray, God, that you would teach us as a church how to affirm and confirm these things in one another. That we would regularly put Jesus and him crucified in the spotlight. That we would point one another to that sacrifice, the fullness of it, the completeness of it, the love of it. That we would point our neighbors and our family members who do not yet know you. That we would point everybody to that cross and him crucified. I pray, Lord, that our lives would be just as a conduit so that people may see the most glorious reality that ever has been. Jesus Christ and him crucified for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.